Please turn with me in your Bibles to John 4, verse 27. And then also uh, put a finger in Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Matthew chapter 6, verse 9. Now that you guys are nice and comfortable and settled in, would you stand with me? We're going to read Matthew 6, 9 through 13 together. So stand with me. Let's read together Matthew 6, 9 through 13. So so how do you guys feel about being the 9 o'clock service? You guys like the 9 o'clock service? Woo! I want to tell you guys, you're my favorite service. But I also told Saturday night that as well, so... But we're having a little reading contest uh, this weekend at RMC. I want you guys to read with me, and we'll see if you guys can do better than Saturday night. Sound good? Okay. So I'm going to read the odd verses. You're going to read the even. Remember what the even numbers are? Okay, so you're going to be even. I'm odd, which is pretty normal, right? So, and then also if you only have New King James Version. If you don't have New King James Version, the Lord still loves you. Uh, There's a lot of great versions, but... It'll be confusing if we all read from different versions. So I'll begin in verse 9. You come in on verse 10. In this manner, therefore, pray. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Give us this day our daily bread. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, we pause just to thank you that you are our dad, that you're our father. It's so wonderful to be loved by you. And that also you're in heaven. Your perspective from your throne is entirely different than ours as we journey through this life. And your name is hallowed. There's no one like you. You're holy, you're just, you're kind, you're gracious. You're all things good. And we invite for your will to be done in our lives afresh this morning. As it is in heaven, may it be on earth. May it be in our lives. We embrace your plan for our lives this morning. We also ask that you would give us daily bread If you have specific things on your heart this morning, specific needs, lift those up to the Lord. God, we pray for physical strength and health. We ask for our inner man to be whole, that you'd provide for financial needs, the daily bread for this church family. Or would you give us our daily bread? And also, would you... Protect us from the evil one. Protect us from Satan. Protect us from our own sinful flesh. We know how easy it is to get off track. We choose to offer forgiveness because you've forgiven us. So we receive your forgiveness. We extend your forgiveness to others. And as we read your word this morning, would you feed our souls? We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. You can have a seat. We put our attention now onto John 4. Jesus needed to go through Samaria. Most Jews at this time, if they were traveling from Jerusalem to the Galilee region, they would go around Samaria, tracking extra miles just because they wanted to avoid the Samaritans. But Jesus had stated, for God so loved the world. 
So he goes to Samaria because he wants the world to know his love. Has a powerful conversation with the woman at the well. Her understanding of Jesus was that he was a Jew. But by the time the conversation was done, Jesus introduces himself as the Messiah. And that's where we pick up this morning and we get the rest of the story. And at this point, his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman, yet no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? Remember, a couple of cultural issues at this time is one, Jews did not talk to Samaritans, but also men and women didn't talk together in public. And so they come and find Jesus talking with this woman and they marveled, they're surprised, but they don't question his integrity. There's nothing about what Christ is doing that would make anybody wonder, is Christ doing something wrong? And that really stands out uh, to us in the world that, that we live in. It's a good challenge to us as men that we would treat women as mothers and sisters with all purity. And Jesus is treating this woman at the well with all purity to where there's no question about Christ's integrity. In verse 28, the woman then left her water pot and went her way into the city and said to them, So the woman leaves her water pot and now she goes back to her village. Remember she was coming to get water, physical water. But now she's experienced living water so she leaves her water pot. I think it's significant. It shows to the reality of how excited she is about Jesus, how excited that she's discovered that Jesus is the Messiah and points to the fact that she's received living water. Who does she go to? She goes to the men of the city, verse 28, and declares this, Come see a man who told me all things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? Remember her background that she'd been married five times, and the guy that she was currently living with was not her husband. So she was a sexually immoral woman. And who does she go to to talk to first as she comes to this Samaritan village? She goes to all the men and says, I met a guy who told me everything I've ever done. And the guys are probably thinking, oh no, that involves me. I'm, I'm part of your story, right? And so notice the response from uh, these men as soon as they hear this. Then they went out of the city and came to him. So, so we got to find out who this guy is and figure out what he knows. The disciples re-enter the picture in verse 31 but before we get to that, let's pause for just a moment and consider this, if you're taking notes, is the power of testimony. This woman has a very elementary, limited view of Christ. She's talked with Christ for a few moments, but she's come to understand that he's the Messiah, that he has supernatural knowledge of her life, and she immediately wants to go and share with others what she knows about Jesus saying, he has told me everything that I've ever done. And we're going to find, as we read this morning, that this whole Samaritan village is impacted by this woman's testimony, her sharing what she's experienced of Christ in, in her life. It doesn't take a lot. Sometimes we think that we have to be an expert on the Bible, that we maybe have to read it through many times or be able to answer everybody's question, but the testimonies that we really see that are powerfully used throughout Scripture are simple and they're personal. Remember the man who was born blind and Jesus healed him? And that caused quite the controversy. And what did he say? 
I don't know all of this, but I do know that I was born blind and now I see. And you too have a story of what Christ has done and is doing in your life. How did you come to know Christ as your Savior? How has the Lord been faithful to you this year? How has he provided for your needs? How has he seen you through a hard time? And that's what we get to go and share. And that's what is powerful in the lives of others. In the book of Revelation, it says that the way that they overcame Satan, the enemy, was through the blood of the lamb and through the word of their testimony and not loving their lives unto death. There's power in testimony. Satan is defeated when we're able to share what Christ has done in our lives. So this woman's a great example of the power of testimony. Verse 31, in the meantime, his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Therefore, the disciples said to one another, has anyone brought him anything to eat? The disciples had been given the assignment to go get some bacon cheeseburgers. Probably not. These are kosher boys, right? But they had to go get some food and bring it back to Christ. Christ was weary, hungry, and tired. They get back and Christ isn't eating. They're saying, hey, you need to eat. And Jesus is like, well, I've got some food that you guys don't know about. I stored some granola bars. It's holding out on you guys, right? And they get all confused and they're saying, did someone get to Jesus first? But Jesus isn't talking about physical food. He's talking about spiritual nourishment. And he goes on to explain, Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and finish his work. This is my food. This is my nourishment is to do the will of the Father, to finish the work that he has sent for me to do. And this is the power of obedience. Jesus is obedient to the will of the Father, to the work of the Father, and he says, this is my true satisfaction. Remember, Christ was weary at the beginning. When he sat down at the well, he was tired, probably in his humanity, the last thing he wanted to do was to reach out to someone But he felt the leading of the Father, and he obeyed the Father, and in obeying the Father, he found true nourishment. He found true substance. And this is the key for us in our lives as well, because oftentimes our sin looks really good. Something that is forbidden by God in our sinful flesh, we go, oh man, this is going to satisfy me. But all it does is lead to greater bondage and death in our lives. There's pleasure in sin for a season, but then it kicks hard, doesn't it? It brings great consequence in our lives. However, obedience at the beginning looks really difficult, doesn't it? We go, man, sin looks so easy, but obedience looks so hard, and oftentimes our flesh is saying, I want to be sinful. I don't want to obey. But in obeying God and doing the work and the will that he has for us, even when we're weary, even when we're tired, then that's when we find true refreshment. That's where our true food is. But here's the trick, is you've got to discern, is this something that God is calling you to do? Or is this something that someone maybe is asking you to do? Or something that you're putting upon yourself? Because if we're trying to live in everybody's expectations or expectations that we put on ourselves, that's going to learn, lead to burnout, isn't it? Jesus knew that this is what he was supposed to do, so he was able to step out in the work and the will of the Father. 
Do you believe that God has work for you, or is this just for Christ? It's easy for us to go, well, this is God's son, so of course he's got work to do. But I don't know that God's got work for me to do. And in Ephesians 2, it lays out very beautifully that we're saved by grace, but that grace doesn't stop at salvation, that we're created for good works. Each and every one of us, God has designed us for good works. He's got a plan for our lives and for us to be able to step into the work that he has for us, to wake up every day, just like Jesus taught us to pray, and say, I want your will. Father, I want your will in my life. I want to be about your work. And Jesus expands this thought by encouraging the disciples to labor in the harvest. Do you say that there are still four months, then comes the harvest? Behold, I say to you, lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are ready, white for harvest. Jesus is referring to these Samaritan men that are coming to the village. And the disciples' mindset is one that follows farming, that there is a time for harvest. And what Jesus is encouraging them is he's saying, the harvest is ready, labor in the field. Don't put it off for four months. And a lot of times when it comes to laboring in God's field, of doing his will and his work, for some reason we think about putting it off. We go, well, I'm not really ready. I haven't maybe grown enough in my relationship with the Lord. I haven't matured enough. Or I'm a little bit too busy. I'm not sure if God could use me. Maybe when my kids get out of the house, I'll have more time to invest in the things of God. Then once your kids get out of the house, you're like, man, I've done a lot of work. I'm tired. <laughs> you know, I, I'm not going to engage in God's harvest and God's field. And we can find a lot of reasons why not to engage in the harvest. We can believe that people's hearts can't be reached. We go, man, the culture's too dark. There's nobody on my street that wants Christ. There's no one in my workplace or my family that wants to hear about Christ. And Jesus is saying, no, now's the time. Lift up your eyes. The fields are, are white for harvest. And he explains how we labor in the field. He says, and he who reaps receives wages, and he who gathers fruit for eternal life, that both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows, another reaps. I sent you to reap for which you have not labored. Others have labored, and you have not entered into their labors. Sometimes God is going to use you to sow in someone's life, to plant in someone's life, and you may not see the fruit. You're sowing the seed of God's love, of the gospel, don't see a response. But then years down the road, another believer comes into their life and they receive Christ their Savior. They got to harvest what you were faithful to sow. But other times it's the other way around. Someone's been praying, someone's been investing, some grandma, some parent, some friend, and you come along and you're just in the right place at the right time and God uses you to bring them into the kingdom. Either way, it's God's work. God's the one who's doing it, and then he who sows and he who reaps, they get to rejoice uh, together. In this, Jesus gives us a really good motivation in verse 36. It says, and he who reaps receives wages and gathers fruit for eternal life. Our lives can be invested in something that is beyond us, and it's eternity. 
This Monday, we had a memorial service in our church for uh, Ron Palmer. And Ron Palmer has come to Rocky Mountain Calvary with his wife, Joan, for over 20 years. I've been here at RMC for 19 years, and Ron and Joan were here when, when I got here. And Ron was faithful to labor in God's field. He lived out what we're reading right here. It's a little strange this morning that Ron's not here with us, because if it was Sunday at the 9 o'clock service, Ron was here. Many of you know Ron. And when I would see Ron, I couldn't help but stare at his Bible, because his Bible was just wore out beyond all get out, to the point where he had rubber bands around it to keep it together. And in sitting with him when he was in hospice, hearing what was dear to his heart was his family, but also lost souls that God had used Ron to be able to bring into the, the kingdom of God. And there was some that didn't know the Lord, and he was concerned about them in his, his last days. See, Ron wasn't always a believer. And there was time in his life before he received Christ where there was an emptiness and a brokenness. And when he came and he received Christ as his Savior, he never forgot about the lost world. He never forgot what it was like to not know Christ as your Savior. He really understood that the Christian life wasn't just about this gathering. And he loved to get together with believers. and Loved to have Bible study in his home. But he found a way to make sure that he was in the lives of those that didn't know Christ as their Savior. And his bait was his cars. He loved old cars, loved hot rods, and he would use his hot rods to share Christ with people and would talk with anyone about cars. Men, women, children talk about cars, but it would always turn the conversation from the cars to a relationship with Christ. Hosted many car shows here in our parking lot, and the parking lot was packed with all these old classic cars, beautiful hot rods, and Ron was sharing Jesus. At our harvest gatherings, many of you have been to our harvest gatherings, there would be hot rods parked by the front door, and two of those would be Ron's. And he knew that people would come up and salivate over his cars. They couldn't help themselves. But then he would use that as an opportunity to share the love of Jesus Christ. And now that he's entered into eternity, he's labored for eternal life. How fun is it for Ron to be at the face of Jesus at the throne room of God and see some that he had the privilege of being able to introduce them to Christ? In Proverbs, it says, He who wins souls is wise. He who wins souls is wise. And you might be saying, well, you know, that's great for Ron, but I don't know that I could do that. Or that's great for this person, but I'm just an ordinary person, or I'm this or I'm that. Remember, God uses the weak and the foolish to confound the wise. He uses those who are willing. He uses those who will trust him. The Bible is filled with God using broken people that trusted the Lord. And you might be saying, well, how could God use me? He would like to use your interests and your passions. That's a lot of times what's going to get you involved with lost people. 
Do you love basketball? Do you love to play basketball? Do you love to, to work out? Do you love old cars? Do you, whatever your interest, your passion is, that's an opportunity. You're going to connect with people to be able to turn the conversation to share about Jesus Christ. But when our life is done, it's not going to matter how much money we had or we didn't have. It's really not going to matter these gifts that are underneath the tree. It's knowing Christ and making him known. What is going to matter is the people, isn't it? And as we head into this Christmas week, I think God's word is timely for us to labor in his field right now. Take a step of faith. Invite someone to Christmas Eve service tomorrow. Take a step of faith. Invite somebody to your Christmas meal. Take a step of faith. Talk with a family member about the goodness of Christ. Just go ahead and share with them what Christ has done in your life this year. Even if you know they don't want to hear it. Even if you know every year they tell you to cram it. Just say, hey, I know you don't like this, but I want you to hear this. This is how God was was faithful in my life this year. But you're never going to regret laboring in the harvest. And that was the encouragement to the disciples. So here comes the men in verse 39. And many of the Samaritans of that city believed in him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So they're moved to belief by the testimony of the woman at the well, but they go a little bit further. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. So Christ stays for two days in the Samaritan village, and many more believed because of his own word. Not all, but many. Many more believed because of the word of Christ. Then they said to the woman, now we believe not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this indeed is the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is the power of experience. They would have only had a superficial, shallow understanding of Jesus if they wouldn't have gotten out of their village and went and talked to Jesus for themselves. You gotta seek Jesus for yourself. You've gotta experience it for yourself. You may be living off of someone else's experience with Christ. And maybe your spouse or a parent or a friend And there's a certain level of faith that you have because they've shared with you. But go a little bit further and hear Christ's words for yourself. Read the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Study it. Read Genesis through Revelation, looking for Christ on on every page. Seek out Christ in prayer so that you can say, you know what? So-and-so impacted me, But I really believe because I've studied Christ's words on my own and I'm convinced he's the Messiah. I'm convinced he's the Christ, the savior of the world. This was frustrating to me growing up as a kid in a Christian family because I could see the reality of Christ in my parents' life and people at church, but I wasn't experiencing the reality of Christ in my life. And foolishly, I held it against the Lord like it was God's fault. Like, why did you reveal yourself to my parents, but you haven't revealed yourself to me? That it was some type of mystery. But in all reality, I wasn't seeking out Christ. I wanted the joy of their experience without having to seek Christ out on my own. Does that make sense? And thankfully, God got my attention with his love, and I was like, wow, you're gracious and kind and 
unconditionally loving and it caused me to want to read God's word for myself. It caused me to want to seek out Christ for myself and then I experienced it fully for myself. I know that I use a lot of food illustrations because it's close to my heart. But I could describe a Chipotle burrito to you and you could become a believer that it's a good burrito and you might get convinced that it's better than Quidoba, but you've got to go experience it for yourself, right? You got to go get in the line and decide if you want white rice or black rice or no rice, what kind of beans you want, meat you want, or lack of meat. I don't know why you'd go to Chipotle if you're not going to get any meat, but hey, I love you, right? <laughs> but you get the idea. There's a difference between just hearing about something and experiencing it. The power of experiencing Christ for ourselves. In verse 43, now after the two days, he departed from there and went to Galilee. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him, having seen all the things he did in Jerusalem at the feast, for they had also gone to the feast. So everyone comes to the feast. All the Jews would come to Jerusalem. And Jesus did miracles in Jerusalem at the feast. They saw those, and so they received Christ and believed Christ. Verse 44 is a reference to Nazareth. We don't get hardly any detail of this in John's account, but Matthew does give us a greater account of Jesus coming to Nazareth, and they largely rejected Christ, and Christ didn't do many works there because of their unbelief. And the reason that they rejected Christ is they were familiar with him, surprisingly. And they said, he can't be the Messiah. He's the carpenter. I grew up with him. We used to build furniture together and build houses together. And his sister and his brother are right over here. So there's no way that he could be the Messiah. And then Jesus refers to that a prophet's without honor in his own city, in his own hometown. And we need to be careful of this, that we don't have a false familiarity with Jesus. They were familiar with Jesus, but they were dead wrong, weren't they? He wasn't just a carpenter. He was God in human flesh. He was the Messiah, but they missed it because they were too comfortable with Jesus. Sometimes in our understanding of Jesus, we think we've got them all figured out because we've read the Gospels a few times. And we don't give room for, man, the knowledge of Christ could increase in my life. So the reception of the Samaritans and the receptions of those in Galilee, it contrasts the rejection of the city of Nazareth. The chapter ends with a nobleman in Galilee. So Jesus came again to Canaan of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. This is the power of desperation. The nobleman, other translations, translated as an official, an official from Capernaum. He's a powerful man. He's a man of position. He's a man of responsibility, probably a man of some means. I'm sure he was also connected with the religious community as politics and religion were very much connected. 
And his money, his position, and religion could not help him in this crisis that his son was at the point of death. And he knew that Christ was in the region, and he chooses to come to Christ and implore Christ to come and to heal his son. What I've observed in my own life and in the life of others, there's no greater pain than watching your children suffer. And there's no greater pain than a parent burying a child. One of the things that we don't anticipate is to ever be at or plan our children's funeral or memorial service. It's just not supposed to work that way. Our kids are supposed to bury us, but not the other way around. You can imagine the kind of desperation that's inside of this man as he's watching his son slip away and he chooses to go and to cry out to Christ. This week I heard a devotional from a young man. He's in his early 20s and he was sharing that in his life there's some challenges, just some difficulties that he's going through and what's really helped him is being in community, being in relationship and especially in relationship with his dad and has been sharing with his dad some of these challenges and this week his dad had shared with him that his son was at the top of his cry list and that every day the dad prays for all of his kids but then he has a special list for very urgent needs, desperate needs that are his cry list that brings him to a place of weeping before God asking that God would intervene in these things. And in this devotional, the young man then concluded and said, I would encourage you to start a cry list if you don't have one. I never heard it put that way before. And this sometimes is difficult to get to this place where we're this raw, we're this broken, before God where we open up our hearts before the Lord, And we weep before God and say, God, this is breaking me. I don't know what to do. I am desperate in this situation. And I'm bringing this person before you. I am sure there were other kids that were sick to the point of death in the Galilee region. The Galilee region encompasses lots of cities. They didn't have the medical care that we do. I'm sure kids passed away much more than they do in our culture. But this is the only dad that's at the feet of Jesus begging him, imploring him. And he didn't allow his reputation or what people thought of him to keep him from being broken before the Lord and crying out to God, saying, God, would you work? And I think that this is also a great insight for parenting. A lot of times in parenting, we try to fix it ourselves And many times we can't. And we forget to do what is very simple and obvious, and that's be broken before the Lord and bring our kids before the Lord in prayer. And implore that the Lord would work in their lives. So it may be a child, or it may be someone that you're close to, or maybe difficulties in your own life, is get desperate before the Lord. And cry out to him and see what the Lord would do. And develop a cry list. In verse 48, Then Jesus said to him, Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. This doesn't seem to be a compliment from the Lord. 
saying that you have to have signs in order to believe, but it does seem a willingness for Christ to meet them where they're at. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. The nobleman saying, Jesus, this is great, but we're on a time schedule here. My son could die at any moment. So would you please come? Would you please come right now? And Jesus said to him, go your way, your son lives. If I'm the nobleman, I would probably feel a little bit better if Jesus just came on down to the house. You know what I'm saying? Like, let's just book it to the house. Let's get to the house. And then if, if you could, like, put your hands on him and pray for him. Let's get some anointing oil. Let's do it all, you know. A nice long prayer. And Jesus just fairly simply says, you can go your way because your son lives. Your son's healed. I've just healed your son. And in amazement to this character of the nobleman, so the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and he went his way. The nobleman didn't argue. The nobleman didn't doubt. He didn't say, but you've got to come to the house. He says, okay, I believe you. I believe the word that you have spoken. If you're in desperation or when you are in desperation, because it is going to come, come to Jesus and trust his word. Trust what he says. Trust his promises. Now, I don't believe that the Bible teaches that everyone's always healed in this life. The apostle Paul didn't receive healing from the Lord from a thorn in his flesh it misses the reality of heaven. Sometimes it's God's intent to take people to heaven. Is it okay for God to take believers to heaven? I mean, how are you going to get there? By death, right? And so sometimes God chooses to provide the ultimate healing by taking us to heaven. So his promises aren't that it always works out our way, but there's many promises of God's presence, of God's peace, of God's sovereign work in our lives, that all things work together for good, for his glory. And great confusion and great despair and hopelessness and depression overcomes our souls when we don't believe the word. And it is a battle and it is a wrestling, but to be able to choose to say, I know God's character displayed upon the cross. I know his faithfulness, so I'm choosing to trust his written word. I'm choosing to trust what I read here in the scriptures, not what my emotions are are telling me, and God is pleased through faith. In fact, God says it's impossible for us to please him without faith. In verse 51, and as he was going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Oh man, this must have sounded so good to the nobleman. Tears of joy for sure. Your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better, and they said to him, Yesterday at the seventh hour the fever left him. So the father knew that it was the same hour in which Jesus said to him, Your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. The miracle is confirmed, and the whole household is impacted for Christ. Many times there can be God's working in a family, but the family doesn't respond in faith. And they receive this miracle by saying, we believe in Jesus. And there's places in the New Testament where a whole household is reached for Christ. And I think that's God's desire to reach a mom and a dad, 
a husband and a wife and the children and the grandparents and for that godly legacy to continue. This again is the second sign Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. John 4 is all about people meeting with Jesus and Jesus pursuing people. Jesus pursued the woman at the well. Jesus was teaching the disciples of where true meaning lies. He's meeting with the disciples. Jesus meets with the Samaritan village. Jesus meets with the nobleman. So here's the encouragement for us, is meet with Jesus. Seek Jesus. Draw near to him. He loves you. He's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And just as he met with these individuals, he wants to meet with us. And as we meet with Jesus, as we come in contact with Jesus, then we become containers of living water. And allow the living water to be poured out from your life, the Holy Spirit to be poured out from your life. God's pouring himself into you, not simply for our own benefit, but for the benefit of others, and begin to pour out the love of Jesus Christ onto others. So let's stand together and let's pray this in. Jesus, we thank you that you haven't changed and you reveal yourself through the pages of scripture. And in our emptiness, just like the woman at the well, in our desperation, just like the nobleman, you want to meet with us. So we invite you to meet with us and we want to seek you. We want to pursue you. And God, we want our lives to count. Or we want our lives to make a difference for eternity. So would you help us to make the proper priorities and surrender afresh to you to be able to be used for eternity. So we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.